okay? All right, then you're talking about the difference between, and these are definitions, remember? So chronotropy means heart rate, right? Ionotropy is force of contraction. Okay, dromotropy, honestly, people, everyone, they don't use that a lot in medicine. So I'm only focusing on the top two, if, if at all, okay? All right, all right, now this is, and so you're gonna have to know, and this is what we just kind of talked about, but what is this? These are antagonistic reactions. What does sympathetic do? It increases the heart rate, right? So it has a positive chronotropic effect, yes? And parasympathetic decreases the heart rate, yep. That's the only thing that they have in common, right? Because the contractility is on the what? Sympathetic or parasympathetic? Parasympathetic and sympathetic have a common denominator, right? The heart rate, yes, yeah. because they all innervate the SA node, both innervate, right? Okay, so what does the sympathetic innervate? Anything else? Contractility. So that is not going to be in here because all we're talking about here is the difference in heart rate, okay? So when you're looking at this heart rate, what are you thinking? Are you thinking of the autonomic or the muscular action potential? Autonomic. Okay, so that's why you have in the sympathetic, you're gonna have an increase in sodium and calcium influx of the autorhythmic cell, remember? And then in the parasympathetic, you're going to have an increase in potassium efflux and a decrease in calcium influx because you want to hyperpolarize the cell to slow down the heart rate. And I'll show you that on the next slide. Remember, this is what people were having a little bit of trouble in because my, you know, my goofy fingers weren't very good here. But this is sympathetic, right? So the blue is sympathetic, right? Okay, so right. if you then you're talking the about of calcium the difference sodium, between they have in common, then this right? resting because potential the is going to be at a higher level, right? It's going to depolarize faster. Yes, are we good? Okay, so that would mean a tachycardic event. You're anxious. You wake up in the morning. You said, oh, "I left my keys in my husband's truck, and he went for work, and I have to go to class." And you start. You know, having a little bit of a panic attack. That's kind of what happens, okay? Are we good? Mm -hmm. Okay, so down here, all I did was explain what's really kind of over here. Does that make sense? Same thing, a little bit differently? Okay, then we're gonna come over here. This has to be with force of contraction. So who's responsible for that? Sympathetic or parasympathetic? Sympathetic, okay? Yes, because now we're looking at, look, norepinephrine, epinephrine. Okay. All right, so that's going to increase. That's going to bind to the beta ones, as you already know. And then it does. It has two effects. One, it's going to open the channels longer. Which channels? The calcium channels. So calcium's going to go in, and so this plateau phase is going to get what longer? Does that make sense? And it gets longer because you have the calcium channels open. The L-type calcium channels open longer. In addition to over here, you're gonna have an increase in the, the uptake of calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So that means you can get more calcium out. If you bring it in faster, you can take it out, push it out faster. Okay, and that's gonna increase your force of contraction. 
So now this is the contractile action potential, remember, for the contractile cells. And the only person responsible for contractile cells is the sympathetic nervous system. Are we good? Yes. I have a question about this slide. Mm -hmm. So I thought that the circa two was like the on the sarcoplasmic reticulum what was taking calcium back into the it is but the the quicker you bring it in and the more um the quicker it again the more action potential you can get it out oh does that make sense so that's what's happening the other thing that's happening like i told you before that's not shown is because it brings it in when the action potential comes down it takes calcium out faster it's going to bring it in quicker so the duration of the contraction is going to be shorter Okay. Because it brings it in quicker. Does that make sense? So the, the fact that the circuit two is taking it up faster just means that on the other side, the other calcium can be coming in quicker. Yeah, because it's bringing it in. So when the calcium from the outside, remember the extracellular calcium and the intracellular calcium, extracellular calcium is going to come in mm -hmm. and cause the L channel to open, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to go through. And then it's going to stimulate the sarcoplasmic reticulum to release more calcium. Remember, okay. it's calcium release, calcium induced. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is when the calcium goes out, you're going to get a stronger contraction. But as soon as the calcium is released, it's going to get into sarcoplasmic reticulum. The next action potential can kick that guy out again. Okay. So it's kind of like a revolving quick. So the duration of the contraction will be shorter because the uptake is faster, but the action potential is faster. So it's going to stimulate it. As soon as it sticks, takes it up, it goes like that and it opens it up again. Okay. And it brings it in, opens it up again. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So here, this is the opposite, the parasympathetic. So in the parasympathetic, remember, you're going to have release onto the muscarinic receptor. And, you know, I'm going to tell you something. If you do some of these things like a story, talk to your dog, your wall, I don't care, anybody, and just do it as a story. It'll make more sense. Like, like how we were doing this over here when I said, okay, norepinephrine is released. What does it bind to? The beta ones. Then what happens? Okay, so pretend like you're giving somebody instructions on how something works, and that's exactly how you should be trying to study to make it to make you understand how the pathway works. Okay, all right. So in parasympathetic over here, what happens? Remember, we talked about it over here. Okay, whoops. Okay, over here, muscarinic receptors on the SA node and AV node because that's who parasympathetic innervates. Remember. Okay, it's going to cause an increase in potassium efflux. So remember, as potassium goes out, what's going to happen to the membrane potential? Yes, it's going to be more negative. So see, this is here, normal. Okay, parasympathetic stimulation, it's going to bring the, the resting potential down. So it's going to take a little bit longer for this to hit 40 to cause an action potential. So it's going to slow the heart rate down because you have a hyperpolarization here. Because this is, remember, this is calcium influx, potassium efflux. And so the potassium is going to keep spitting out and bringing the resting potential lower. So it's going to take a little bit for the heart to stimulate. So it's going to decrease your heart rate because it hyperpolarizes the cell, right? Are we good? Okay. So that's what Can I kind of clarify wanted to something real quick. Sure. This is Allison. Sorry, Hi, Allison. Um, oh, I haven't heard from you little... from Zoom. Allison, thank you. I'd like to You're hear your good. voice again. I got a little uh, late coming on. Um, so with 
this when you say like yes. it depol oh, of course my mind just went blank for a second um it's okay you guys are on you guys are on overdrive i get it yeah, you guys just need like, to de you know go do something to decompress and then come back to life seriously that's, right, that's the only thing you to. do um but with this when i like i understand like the hyperpolarization depolarization and all that stuff but when like we're thinking about like a storyline what's happening here is basically the reason, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, this one. Thank you. Um, so the muscarinic receptors go to the SA and AV node, and now they're on. They're on the SA and AV node. Yeah, like sorry. The catcher's mitt catching acetylcholine. Perfect. Yeah. So they're on there, and then when it says that increased potassium efflux, what that's doing is that's making the cell more negative. Correct. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Sorry, that took a lot no, for me to say. No, that's that, that's okay. It. Because the thing is, is that if you have to kind of understand how the action potential works anyway, right. From the skeletal muscle, that's what kind of you're supposed to mimic. Okay. But okay. So, so it's my, the same. Okay. Go ahead. You found your question. Sorry, I found my, yeah, I found like the rest of my thought. So my thought okay. is like, if you make that cell more negative in order uh -huh. to reach that threshold in order for an action potential to happen, it's going to take longer for it to happen. Correct. That's why okay. it decreases Thank the you. heart rate. So okay. my brain's working again. We're all set. No, we're good. We're good. Okay. I have a question. Yes. Um, so with regards to the heart rate, it uh, makes sense that both the sympathetic and parasympathetic um, pathways would be associated since they're both part of the SA node. Um, okay. On one of your notes, I have that parasympathetic also has a effect on contractility, um, but I feel like... Well, at least no, my yeah, but, okay, the, the parasympathetic... Thank you for bringing that up. It's primarily sympathetic, primarily, okay? okay? The, the and there, might, there might be a couple strands. Does that make sense? Your book mentions it. It's the only reason I mentioned it because we usually don't even talk about parasympathetic with contractility at all because it doesn't have a very strong effect, so it really doesn't change anything. Does and that make that sense? Because, yeah, the, and that's because the sympathetic is the one that's innervating the actual muscles of the heart? Yes, it's, there's more innervation of sympathetic than parasympathetic. Parasympathetic, okay. let, let's let's say there's 10 strands of sympathetic and there's maybe two of parasympathetic. So is that gonna really change anything? No. Right. Does that okay. make sense? So I kind of assume that when I'm thinking about contractility or the force of contraction, that that's primarily a sympathetic pathway. Correct. Okay. Yes. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. No, no problem. I just don't want you guys to get confused. Just kind of separate. Too much knowledge encourages your brain to go haywire, right? Okay. And that's okay. I love the fact you guys. If I say something, it's not to be negative or anything. If I like today when I said something about Christine, it's because her mind was on that. I was waiting for her to ask me the next question that followed, which I was like so happy that she was asking. You know what I mean? But it doesn't mean I'm being negative. So please don't take anything negative because I'm not in that. I'm, that's not me. Okay. All right. So normal rate of discharge at the SA node here is 70 to 80 beats per minute. So remember, if the SA node fails, who takes over? At what, at what rate? 40 to 60. If the, the AV node is failing, then who takes over? Brakenji. Does that make sense? All right. So SA node's a pacemaker because it has a faster discharge, but who depolarizes faster? Okay. Wait for it. Okay. All right. So this next one, we're talking about the internodal fibers. And remember, we kind of, um, no, I don't even have. 
See, some of my PowerPoints, I don't know. I think the stuff goes away. I don't know. Anyway, okay, so remember you're going from the, and this is why I said this. these numbers are important because these numbers are going to give you a, there's a question, not necessarily about the numbers, but do you understand that how the numbers work? Does that make sense? So remember, you go from the SA node to the internodal fibers to the to the AV node. That takes 0 0.03 seconds, right? Mm -hmm. And then from there, you're going to go to the AV node, right? And so when the AV nodes start depolarizing, look at how long that lag is. So what would you say about the AV node? That's where the delay is. Remember the delay? Is that because it doesn't have any gas junctions? Or what causes that delay? It's purposeful, right? It's purposeful because we have to electrocute the atria first. Mm -hmm. And that, that guy waits until those atria start contracting and then he takes off. Does that make sense? So there's a purpose for the AV nodal delay. That's what it's called, the AV nodal delay. Okay? Mm -hmm. All right. So remember... That transmission through the atria is going to be your P wave. Okay. So Dr. where Clark, you might have asked a question real quick. Sure. Um, I understand I understand that like the that delay in the A V node is it's like intentful. There's a reason for that, so that both atria can contract um, and get the blood into the ventricles. Uh -huh. um, would you mind just like shedding some light onto why that delay occurs? Okay. Because um, it's almost as it's because the, I don't know if you can see me, the atria have to remember, fill that last 20% of the ventricle. That's its purpose to push that rest of the blood into the ventricle. So what happens is the SA node will fire, it'll depolarize all the atria. Okay. And all the atria then when they all are electrocuted, so to speak, then they contract. If they contract before the ventricles contract, then what happens? I mean, if they contract after the ventricles or delay too long, what happens? The blood's not going to shoot through the ventricles. The ventricles will, will squeeze and contract, and the blood will go back to the atria. So the purpose of it is for the atria to finish the ventricular filling. And that's why the delay occurs. Because if it didn't occur, then your atria and your ventricles will be contracting at different times. Can I clarify that real quick? This is mm -hmm. Allison. Hi, Allison. Um, so I understand like why it happens, but does it like, so someone had mentioned like gap junctions, for example, like are there less of those so it goes slower through the atrium? Or like why like why is that speed slower in the atrium? Like I understand like the purpose behind it, but I'm not understanding yeah, because the there's, physiological there, action. Yes, yes, the physiological action is there's less gap junctions. Okay, thanks. So there's a bigger delay. Okay, then from there, what happens? Then it goes from the AV node to the AV bundle. Now, mind you, I want you guys to remember that most exams will say the bundle of his. They don't use AV bundle, but you see, you have to know those two names, okay? Not that my exam's gonna do that, but I just want you to know in the future, they're gonna call it the bundle of his, which is also known as the AV bundle, okay? All right, so then from there, what happens? Okay, so then after these three internal fibers get, stimulate the muscle, the atria, then they contract, correct? And when they contract, that's your PR, portion. After the P wave, there's a little bit of a lag. That's because that's when the atria contract. Are we good? Okay. 
So then we're looking at the, mo the delay in the AV node. That's the most delay is in the AV node because why? Because they have to wait for that electrocution to happen and the, and the atria begin to contract. Because when they begin to contract, that's when the AV node knows what to go again. Okay. Are we good? Okay. All right. So now we're at the conduction pathway. Okay. So there's normally it usually it goes Q and then R. Remember, I kind of kind of had that backwards on my slide. I fixed it. Okay. So Q to R is basically starting from the bundle. Are you asking me a question? Sorry. Okay. All right. So this is basically this AV bundle here. That's going to be the only pathway that's going to go from the atria to the ventricle. So what happens is you're having a transmission from here. Q goes from the AV node to the AV bundle. That's what this little uh, thicker line is. Okay. And then it starts moving downward, and then it's to the down the elect, the uh, the uh, conduction starts going down, and then it's going to go to the right and left. But it starts going down the distal part of the AV bundle, and that's what you're going to have with this QR interval. Okay, all right. Then we go over here. Then for the right and left bundle is when the RS. So this is kind of all in one, you guys. There's not really a point where it kind of stops and starts. It's just saying that. You're starting to depolarize, and from the AV node to the AV bundle is going to be the Q wave, the little part at the bottom down here. Okay. And then as it continues down to the distal part of the bundle, it goes up to the R wave back here. And then from there on, it's going to be from the RS. Does that make sense? So it's kind of all one. The QRS is just one. I'm just kind of showing you how it kind of moves along. Yes, Christine. The thing that doesn't make sense to me is just electrically how this works. Because on the wave, like, aren't we following depolarizations are going? So then why is it coming down if it's continuing to travel? You know what I mean? Yeah, because well, because what what's happening is when you when you take EKG and you do the electrodes, you'll know when they go toward each other, away from each other, why the deflections occur. Does that make sense? The direction. Yeah, it's the direction of electricity, how it's going through from which arm to which arm or which arm to which leg. And that's that's why I didn't go into because I knew you guys are going to have a whole class on heart. So I'm just as long as you know what PQRST is, then you're really kind of set at that point. And then when they start talking about vectors, because that's what they're going to start talking about, that's when it gets a little bit more complicated. So it's all about which direction the electricity flows does that make sense to get these deflections okay all right so then when it gets to the Purkinje, uh, look what it says fast conduction why because these Purkinjes go over here okay so they're the fastest conduction okay does that make sense because they have a lot of gap junctions and more Interclated discs, so they the, the the speed can go faster. So what you're kind of doing, um, people in Salt Lake, Allison, when is your question? I can't remember the person before you. Is that the gap junctions? Think about it. They're kind of increasing in amount as they move down the heart. Does that make sense? And once they get to the muscle, that's when you have an entirely large quantity. So that's going to spread quickly and then contract quickly. Okay. 
So the SA node is what? The pacemaker of the heart. Well, what does that do? That just is going to do what? Starts the heart. But who's the fastest conductor for Kinji fibers? Who's the slowest conductor? AV node. AV node. That's what you have to know. Fast, you know, pacemaker, AV node, and then the Purkinjis are the fastest conduction. And you can see that with these numbers. That's why when I was talking in class, I said, notice this, this, the seconds here that they're doing all the way down, how fast from, from here to here it goes compared to here to here. Does that make sense? Okay. So the fastest conduction is your Purkinjis. Okay. All right. All right. So then if you topic pacemakers, all we really talked about is they're either going to discharge or discharging faster than the SA node. Right. Okay. And if there's a delay in picking up of the, uh, the charge, it's going to be a, a Stoke Adams syndrome. <clears throat> and remember what syncope is. Remember what syncope is? A temporary loss of consciousness, which is also called what? Fainting. Okay. All right. Are we good? All right. So this is what I was talking about before. If the AV node is blocked. Okay. Now, this is what you have to start thinking about. If you're missing a QRS interval, what's happening? But where? From where to where? Oh. AV node to the Purkinje's, right? Because what's the QRS, right? It's from the AV bundle, right, to the Purkinje's. Well, AV node, which is a Q wave, right? Okay. If that's missing, then when you have an AKG, you have P wave, P wave, P wave, right? Because that means your ventricles aren't contracting, correct? If you lose the P wave, what would you see on the EKG? No P, just QRS, just QRS. So what's the P represent? Yes. Does that make sense? Okay. Sorry, I just felt like we didn't hear the answer from the St. George students. Oh, she said the SA node. Uh, no, the AV node, sorry. The AV node. Isn't that what you say, Christine? No, no, so the P, sorry, so the P wave is the SA node, because then it goes around to the atria. Correct. Right? The, the P is the SA node sending its pacemaker potential, right? So if, you, so if you're looking at an EKG, you have to know P is contraction. So what's causing contraction? SA node to AV node, right? But the SA node is the one who's starting it, correct? Then you look at QRS. Who's starting QRS? The AV node, right? Okay, this is AV? Allison. Yes. Um, I'm just, this is my dumb way of remembering it, and I don't know if it'll help someone else. But when I look oh, at like good. the QRS. Share, share, please, yes. <laughs> the QRS looks like an upside-down V, so that's when you know the ventricle is contracting and what signal is being sent through the ventricle is from the AV node to the Purkinje fibers. Is that oh my correct gosh, logic? that's a that's, great that's, that's a great I'm analogy. I'm gonna have to use that. You should tap yourself on the back. That was an awesome analogy. Yes. Awesome. Somebody here in St. George is wondering if you could repeat that. Allison, repeat that, please, for St. George. Yeah, sorry, I'll talk a little bit slower. Um, so what I was saying is when you look at the EKG, the QRS makes like the V signal. Uh, right like here, an upside down watch. V. See how this is an upside down V. And so when you look at that, I mean, and what I'm also talking about, like when you look at the actual EKG waves, so like the QRS triangle that it makes also looks like an upside down V. So if you're looking at the EKG, you know, 
in the QRS phase is when it's going from the AV node to the Purkinje fibers. That's so she, it, she's looking it's at a like silly the, way to remember it. So if you look at that, does that make sense coming down like that? It's a V. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, that was a, that's a great analogy. Awesome. Okay, are we good? Okay, so what happens after that? Then the ventricles contract right here, the ST. And then the T wave is what? Relaxation, repolarization. Are we good? Hey, Dr. Klein. Yep. Hey, this is Sarah. Um, hi, Sarah. Um, hi. Uh, could you talk about the Stokes-Adams syndrome again, please? I missed that part. I don't know where it is now. It was just one back I mean, went forward. <laughs> yeah, right there. Okay, so what happens is, this is what we're talking about a little while ago. When I said to you before, how about if the SA node was injured? Who takes over to get your heart rate going? The AV node. Then if the AV node, you know, dies out, then who, who takes over? The Purkinje. But notice that the pattern of heart rate slows down as it goes down. Does that make sense? So if the Purkinje fibers are going to be your pacemaker because the because the SA node and the AV node were damaged, are you gonna live that long? No, okay? So what's happening here is that now if you have, that's one analogy. Then if you have a new pacemaker that goes faster than the SA node, which would be a pacemaker over here, this would be a premature atrial contraction for all intents and purposes, that's what it would create, okay? Then what happens is, that they're, because the SA node and this, these guys are going together, this is gonna go at a faster rate. And what it's gonna cause is the heartbeat, the electricity won't get, in other words, it'll miss picking up that signal. And so when it misses picking up that signal, what happens? If the AV node's blocked, what happens? It, it's not gonna take, it's gonna take the, the, the ventricles to do what? They don't contract, right? Because they're not picking up the signal. The ventricles aren't picking that signal. It came from that ectopic pacemaker because it's not coming from the SA node. Does that make sense? It's coming faster. So what happens is the ventricles fail to contract and the person will faint because of the lack of blood to the, to, to the brain. And that's what Stoke-Adams syndrome is. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I just want to clarify when you said like the AV node, <coughs> excuse me, is discharging faster. Well, not the AV node. I meant the, the atrial ectopic pacemaker is going to be, when a pacemaker comes in up here in the atrium, it goes faster than the SA node. It's going to start shooting faster than the SA node. So it's not that the SA node is broken and it's only doing it at 50 beats per minute. It's that this new ectopic one is doing it at like 100. Yes, at 100 beats per minute. Beats per minute. Okay. Thanks. And so what happens is that there, there's a disconnect is right. basically what happens. Okay. okay? But what I mentioned before, though, I guess I kind of mixed it together, is that if I sit on a test, if the AV node is blocked, who then takes over? Does that make sense? If the SA node is blocked, who takes over? Do you see what I'm saying? So you have to look down at it, but you also have to look at, okay, if that happened, what would it look like on an EKG based on the P wave of the QRS? Does that make sense? So like I said, if you're missing a QRS wave, what would be happening with the depolarization? Where would it be blocked? The QRS. Come on, Allison, you knew this, the upside down V. AV to the 
Right, the AV dipper Kenji. So that means that you're losing, you're dropping your pure, correct? That makes sense. If the P wave's gone, right, what happened? There's no conduction between who and who. SA node and AV node. Does that make sense? Okay. So are you saying like what what exactly is an ectopic pacemaker? Is this a pacemaker that like is is surgically implanted or is like where is this what exactly is an ectopic pacemaker? An ectopic pacemaker is when the cell the heart cells themselves decide to run at a different pace. It's just like idiopathic. It just happens. Does that Thank make you. sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's the same thing would happen in the ventricles. So when you have an atrioectopic pacemaker, when you guys get to EKGs, it's going to mean a premature atrial contraction. If you have a ventricular ectopic pacemaker, it's going to be a ventricular atopic but contraction. But not like a full effective contraction, just kind of like a little... It will... No, it, but it will show up as an electrical signal on your EKG. And then functionally in the heart, it's not providing an effective, true, full contraction? Correct. It's kind of blocking it or try to speed it up too, so too fast. And, in, and as a result, your atria or your ventricles won't contract? Your atria and your ventricles will contract at probably different times. Does that make sense? So it's basically a misfire? It's a misfire. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So I talked about premature um, atrial contractions and premature ventricular contractions, okay? And these are not going to be um, probably on your test. I don't remember putting a question on that, but I really would like you to know because you're going to have to know when you get to your next level, okay? All right. I took that out of the equation. No, we don't have that one. Okay, so for, for first of all, you have to know EKG. Okay, so if you don't have a Q wave, what happens? If you don't have a P wave, what happens? If the SA node dies, who takes over that, those three things that we just talked about? Okay. Okay, and then who, then you have to know who innervates the SA node, who innervates the AV node, and who innervates the muscle, and how that mechanism works. So everything we kind of talked about right now, everyone, is basically on your test somehow, okay? So try to look, look, try to go through that, okay? Who is, who's the pacemaker? The SA. Right, SA node. Okay, and the delay, what's the greatest delay in what, in what node? And who, and who conducts the fastest? For Kinji fibers. Are we good? It's not a lot to learn. It's just that you got to break it down. Okay. I mean, you know, if I did that and just taught you that and then you'd go to your next step, I don't think that would be enough for you to you know, understand. So that's why I'm trying to do the reviews because reviews sometimes are really helpful in a sense that you're going to go back and go, oh, I didn't think of it that way. And that's what I want you to do. Okay. All right. So now we're doing section three. Okay. And I already went kind of over what I was going to show you in section four. I can't ever get this stupid thing to do this right. This is what I don't do math because I don't know how to do anything. Are you going to come over? Oh, I thought she was going to come over and help me point no, to this. Oh, sorry. No. Okay. All right. I don't, I just, I just feel like I'm not.
You can go up to where it says slideshow and hit that in the top of this white screen. A little higher. Yeah, Down I know. Right there. I know. I now know. hit slideshow. Yep, from current slide. Brandon. Okay, see, I didn't, you told me this doesn't work like my computer, so I'm like, okay, I don't want to touch anything and make it really, really bad. Okay, so we're going to talk about circulation here. Okay, this slide is telling you a test question, maybe two. Okay, who is the pressure reservoir? What vessels? The pressure reservoir is arteries. Correct. Okay, arteries, in other words, right? Yes, okay. Then who are the variable resistance vessels? arterioles so the arteries are the pressure reservoirs because remember if you remember from that slide when the ventricle contracts the pressure goes into the aorta which is your mean arterial pressure remember that okay and then it holds that pressure because you go under diastole your heart's not going to stop so those vessels will hold that pressure and then push the blood through during diastole does that make sense that's why they're the pressure reservoirs Okay, what are the capillaries? Exchange vessels, right? Okay, and what's the systemic veins? The volume reservoirs, they hold a lot of blood, okay? Because blood's gonna flow back to the right side of the heart. Okay. All right. So that, that right tells you a whole bunch right there. Okay. All right. And so remember what we're learning now is the gas exchange, right? That, that occurs in the pulmonary circulation. Correct. This is the next chapter. Okay. And then you have to kind of know how many liters of blood goes through your body. You have to know that. I mean, these, these are things that if you go into surgery and you watch a surgeon do something and he asks you how many liters of blood go through your body and you have no clue, he's going to put you right on that chair and you're going to be there, but he's going to ignore you the whole time. Seriously, I'm just telling you from experience, okay? If you don't know something, they kind of just shun you and just like, okay, I'll, I'll ask them tomorrow. If you don't know the answer tomorrow, then they're just going to kind of let you be a wallflower and keep it moving. They're not going to teach you. The more questions you ask you guys to these people, the more they're going to teach you stuff, okay? All right, so blood vessels. Who secretes nitrous oxide? And what is nitrous oxide? Can you know that commercial beats? Beets give you nitric oxide. So they, what do they do the vessels? Yes, vasodilate. So they give more blood to your brain. That's why people say, oh, you're going to feel good and your blood pressure is going to go down and blah, 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 blah. That's why. But you can't keep doing it forever because then your body's not going to react to it anymore. Because <laughs> it's just like the baroreceptor reflex, okay? All right. So these are the different layers, the smooth muscle in the blood vessels. Again, you have to know the vasoconstriction effect, the vasodilation effect. I think we kind of have that down now. Is everybody good? Look, though, this is what I asked you. What receptor? See how different it is from the heart. Now sympathetic's going to the blood vessels. And, the, and the, you're going to have vasoconstriction, right, which is going to cause narrowing. But these are via the alpha-1 receptors on the smooth muscles. They respond to norepinephrine more than epinephrine. So what central nervous system branch is this? Parasympathetic? Sympathetic. So put it down there. So what you guys are going to learn when you take the nervous system is that you're going to have sympathetic and parasympathetic. Okay. 
Sympathetic are all going to be alpha and beta receptors, remember? And parasympathetic are going to be cholinergic receptor, which are mescalinic and nicotinic. But each of the, bless you, but each of these organs, and this is what I'm trying to teach you, each of the organs have alpha and beta receptors, but they might respond equally, like they might vasoconstrict, they might vasodilate, but now you're learning in pulmonary that it does the opposite of this in the bronchioles. Does that make sense? The smooth muscle, the bronchioles. So each has receptors, but it depends on the isoforms. Remember one, two, three, or one and two. Okay. All right. So vasoconstrictor causes, vasoconstriction causes narrowing. So what does narrowing do? It decreases or increases blood flow. If it narrows the diameter, it's going to decrease, right? Okay. I thought you said increase. I was hoping you didn't. Okay, vasodilation is going to widen the diameter via beta-2 receptors. Okay, notice what, what, did the, what did the heart have? Beta-1s. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay, remember? Okay. All right, so then it's going to respond to epinephrine, norepinephrine. So again, it's going to respond in this situation. The betas respond more strongly to epinephrine where alphas were norepinephrine. Okay. So this is where people get really Confucius. And if you try to just keep it right, just put, you know, make a picture of the heart and slap the beta cell on there. Which one? one. Beta one, right? And then you go to the arteries. Remember, the arteries are smooth muscle. Okay, it's not cardiac muscle, it's smooth muscle. And that's why the reactions are different. Okay, are we good? Okay, then you have to look at... Yep. I'm sorry, I had a question real quick. Sure. Um, so when you're releasing this epinephrine and norepinephrine going on to beta receptors, is that saying that sympathetic can also cause vasodilation? It does different things in different organs. So sympathetic so will release norepinephrine and, or, and norepinephrine and epinephrine, but it depends right. which, if they're alpha one or alpha two, beta one or beta two, they, these receptors will react more strongly to one sympathetic neurotransmitter, either norepinephrine or epinephrine. Does that make sense? I guess, yeah, I guess my question is then, are we saying that, sympath that sympathetic nervous system is solely responsible for the vasodilation and vasoconstriction in the vessels specifically or smooth yeah. muscle? Yes. Okay. So we're not paying attention to parasympathetic when it comes to the blood vessels with regards to how they're reacting? Because parasympathetic really doesn't have anything to do with that. And I want you to hang on to that thought because this is really important. I, I don't know if I showed you this on this one. Crap, I hope I did. No, nope, I didn't. Okay. On four, do you remember that blood vessel that I showed you on the next, the last, I think it was the last set of, the next set of slides where it had the vessel and it had sympathetic and parasympathetic with norepinephrine. And if, you, if you stimulate more, it's going to contract. And if you stimulate less, it's going to open visodilate. That's kind of this principle. And that's exactly what you're thinking about and you're in the right track, yes. Parasympathetic really has, has no inter direct innervation to blood vessels. It's only sympathetic. So you're either going to increase sympathetic stimulation, okay, or you're going to decrease it. So if you increase it, what's going to happen based on this? Increase it, you're going to have vasoconstriction. Mm -hmm. right? And if you decrease it, you're going to have vasodilation, correct? Does that make sense? So this is Allison again. I'm sorry. Yeah. I feel like I'm talking a lot. Um, no, it's okay. But it's not in this picture that you see it, though. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, to go off of what Taylor was saying. So I guess the part that I am confused at as well is under the smooth muscle, it mm -hmm. says they are under the control of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. 
So yes. I want to just clarify that we are only focusing on the sympathetic nervous We're system. We're only focusing the on the sympathetic, system. correct. Okay, correct. Only on sympathetic, yeah. This is Sarah. So uh -huh. are you saying, um, I, I just want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, um, and I don't know which one specifically, but I guess the way that I'm thinking about it is if the sympathetic nervous system is like the more activated it is, the more stimulated it is, is that meaning that it's going to be producing more norepinephrine than epinephrine and the less we stimulate it, it does vice versa? Am I understanding that correctly? It, yeah, it depends. Yeah, on the receptors. It depends on the receptors. So look at right here where it says alpha is more strongly to norepinephrine. Are we good? Yes. Yeah. So like so you said, you stimulate it more and more epinephrine, epinephrine want, norepinephrine wants to bind the alpha receptor. The epinephrine can bind, but you're not going to get the same vasoconstriction effect. So then is the stimulation of the, of the sympathetic system affecting the receptors more than it's affecting what's being released? No, it's affecting the release. So more is going to be released, but because every receptor is specific to either norepinephrine or epinephrine, the alpha ones are going to respond more to to the um, norepinephrine. And so they're gonna cause vasoconstriction. They, it's not that they're ignoring epinephrine, it's just that they're, the, the epinephrine and norepinephrine are kind of going toward the receptor, but the receptor likes norepinephrine better. And so it will bind more epinephrine, norepinephrine's release, the more it binds to alpha one receptors, the more contraction you have. You still have epinephrine, but the preferred, the receptor prefers norepinephrine. But that's just for like the alpha one receptors, because right, if so it, like, we're talking about alpha or beta two receptors, then it would be the opposite. Correct. So, so basically any stimulation of the sympathetic can either have vasoconstriction or vasodilation effects. Correct. And it's all dependent on the receptors. And I and remember we talked about agonist and antagonist. Remember we talked about that? So agonist and antagonist can both be the same drug. It could be, you know, an epinephrine, but the epinephrine might not have the same effect on the alpha as it would on the beta. And the alpha one receptors are also a part of those adrenergic. Um, Correct. Alpha, and alpha and beta. Okay. This is what you have to write down. Alpha and beta equals adrenergic. Um, I guess my question is alpha one receptors are also in the heart. Um, do we just need to kind of look at them independently right now with how they react in the heart versus how they react in the vessels? Yes. Okay. Okay. We good. Wait, wait, then muscarinic means norepinephrine. I mean, uh, means muscarinic and nicotinic receptors. Uh, I'm sorry to come back to the vasoconstriction and vasodilation, mm -hmm. but the only way it makes sense to me, and I hope this is correct, is that if we have a vessel that uh, we need to vasodilate, we would send a message through our sympathetic nervous system to release epinephrine and not norepinephrine. Yeah, because remember, okay, no, no. So that we can trigger those beta two. Okay, why? No, wait. Okay, one of the things you guys forgot when we talked about the adrenal medulla, mm -hmm. that is a sympathetic. So when the sympathetic comes out and gets stimulated, it's gonna go and release norepinephrine but then it's going to stimulate the adrenal medulla to release epinephrine into the blood. 
then it's going to go to whatever organ or organs that have the receptors for those for those drugs. Does that make sense? So in, in vasoconstriction, sympathetic nervous system is going to release norepinephrine, and that's going to bind to the alpha receptors on the arterioles. They're going to cause vasoconstriction. Okay. And then in vasodilation, the, the one responsible for vasodilation is the adrenal medulla. The adrenal medulla release epinephrine and it'll go to the beta-2 receptors and cause them to vasodilate. Okay. But you have to remember that anything that's just secreting your body is always going to compete for a receptor. Okay. Because it can bind. Some of them are going to be antagonistic. Some are going to be agonistic. Okay. All right, so let me let me ask you a question, just hypothetically. Okay, if you have an uh, if you have a um, adrenergic antagonist, what is it going to do to the vessels? Okay, it, but you it, have it, to know that that antagonist. First of all, excuse me for just a minute. Whether it's going to be uh, an antagonist, like a, an antagonist that antagonizes norepinephrine, which would be alpha, or is this antagonized epinephrine? Does that make sense? Because medications you give people are going to be adrenergic, but they're going to bind either to alpha or beta receptors. Does that make sense? Okay, your question, sorry. No, it was part of that. No, you answered it. Okay. <laughs> I have All a right. question on that. So are, this is Sarah again, are the okay. drugs going to be labeled like alpha one adrenergic? No, no they're going to be, they're going to be there. Yes. In the, in the, um, like, you know, what the composition mechanism of action, all that, but they're not going to be called that. They're just going to be, the people are going to say, we're going to give them an adrenergic a medication. You're going to have to know the classifications and pharmacology of what those alpha, what the betas, one beta twos are. Does that make sense? The drug names will be named like a like um, a beta blocker. Okay, beta blockers really block beta one receptors. Does that make sense on the heart? Heart. Um, and that's that's classified as beta one. If you have a different beta, then it'll be called something else. Yeah. Um. So if you have an adrenergic antagonist that acts on epinephrine, then you uh -huh. are causing decreasing vasoconstriction and they're yes so what are you going to do like vaso vasodilation. Okay. yes cool. yes and they do have drugs that do that that's what i'm saying there's drugs that actually will be called something okay because i don't want i don't want to put words in any more words that you need to know okay so we're going to talk, talk call it an antagonist so an antagonist will block the effect of what the alpha does if we gave it if we give a person a beta 2 antagonist then what will happen with the vasodilation It'll do what? Vasoconstrict, because it does the opposite. Does that make sense? Okay, muscarinics. How about if you have an antagonist that blocks muscarinic receptors of the heart? What happens? This is Roko. It would speed up the heart. Okay, does that make sense? So anytime you see an agonist, it's going to do what? An agonist does what the drug does. It enhances it. It's like a um, catalyst. Okay? An antagonist does the opposite effect. Does that make sense? So it's kind of like parasympathetic and sympathetic, but in a drug form. Okay. All right. All right. So as far as the arteries, you have to kind of know what they, for instance, remember, look at this, highlight this pressure reservoir. Why? 
because it has a huge amount of what? Elastic fibers. Okay, and it's a thick vessel. And it's under high pressure because it's what? A pressure reservoir. Are we good? Okay. Arterioles. Okay, arterioles can alter their diameter. So what does that mean? They can vary their resistance. Those are the two important things right there. Arterioles. Okay. And that's what these drugs are doing. The arterial smooth muscle drugs that we just talked about are going on to these arterioles. Because remember, those are the ones that can vasoconstrict. Okay. All right. Capillaries. They're one layer thick of endothelium, right? And they are the exchange vessels because they exchange fluid, nutrients, and waste. Yes? From where to where? Between the blood and the interstitial fluid, okay? That's why we were talking today about blood going through the pulmonary vessels in the capillary with the alveolar. Remember the, the pathway, they have to go through each, each vessel, okay? All right, venules have endothelium. They don't, they, we didn't talk about a, a presumed function for them, so we're just gonna leave that be. Veins, remember the volume reservoir because they hold half of the blood in the circulatory system, okay? So if they are distended, that means they're at a lower pressure, yes? It's not when, until they contract is when the pressure increases, yes, okay? So they're expandable. And they serve as volume reservoirs. That's all you need to know for that. So highlight those two things and you're going to be good to go. Okay. All right. This is the example of why we're talking that the arteries are pressure reservoirs because of their elasticity. Okay. So this is the ventricle contracting, pushing blood through the stenotic valve, not stenotic, but the aortic valve or the pulmonary valve, right? And the blood pushes into the aorta, right, or the pulmonary artery, and they're going to distend. They're going to push blood through, but then they're going to hold that pressure because when the ventricles and diastole, when it's resting, then they recoil and push the rest of the blood out. So you're going to continuously get a pulse because you're going squeezing every time. Does that make sense? Okay. Veins, what do they have? That's important. Valves. Okay. All right. And that's Good, I didn't ask you anything about that except for that. I don't think I asked, and I know I didn't. Um, I asked something about precapillary sphincters though, when it comes to this picture. Okay, so when precapillary sphincters are relaxed, what happens? And when they're contracted, what happens? Does everybody know that one already? Okay, do you have a question? No, no. Okay. Are we good? Angiogenesis is one of the definitions. What is it? Development of new blood vessels. When does it occur? With the children, when you, when you have a wound healing, right? When you're having a baby, when you're in, in endurance training. So the more tissue you develop or more muscle you develop, the more vascularization you're gonna get. The other bad thing is that, that, that tumors do the same thing. They love blood, so they initiate angiogenesis. Okay, I didn't ask you anything about um, cytokines, I don't think. And coronary heart diseases from the last chapter. Remember the last thing we talked about. 
Okay. Pressure changes. You're going to have to know for sure. Remember, we changed this because this is supposed to be a positive and it's an actually, a, okay. So you're going to have to know what pulse pressure is and how to calculate it. You're going to have to know mean arterial pressure and how to calculate it. Okay, with the variables. And the formulas might be on there, but don't bank on it. Does that make sense? Are we good? Okay, so, and looking at this, remember pulse pressure is just systolic minus diastolic blood pressure. So if I gave you 120 over 80, can you calculate pulse pressure? Yes. And remember that pulse pressure is the pulses that you feel when you take a pulse, how fast are, when you have, when you're in high anxiety or have high blood pressure, you're going to feel that boom, boom against your fingers or a patient. And when you're chill and you're like an exercising, you're, you're kind of still exercising person, like a trained person that exercises does marathon, you have to like really push down to try to feel their pulse because they're, because it doesn't pulsate that hard. Okay. All right. Because their heart is more efficient. Yes. Did you say that it was plus um the pulse yes, pressure we, we changed, yeah we know it's plus we okay. we talked about it in class but i don't know if everybody got it but i thought you got it because i put it up the next day so if you didn't get it it's, it's plus one third one third okay Eight. i'm sorry that's why i put it in red because i thought okay i'm gonna put it in red in case people didn't get it okay you're gonna have to calculate both of those Dr. all right mm -hmm. um is the pulse pressure the same, basically the same thing as um, the stroke volume calculation. Okay. Um, yeah, kind of. All the pulse pressure is doing is telling you the strength of the pulse wave. So if you look up at this aorta here, this is your pulse wave. Remember how the aorta has that that little dichrotic notch? It goes back. And it just has to deal with when it pumps is how's it moving. You know, and wh where everything's just because you got to remember arteries kind of contract and then open and contract and open. That's why you have that pulse pressure going on here. Okay, and as it comes down to the capillaries, it dissipates. There's no more pulse pressure. Okay, okay. So, so it's like throwing a rock against, against water and watching it hit in the water in a lake and then slowing down. Does that make sense? That's kind of what it's like. Yes, go ahead. So then in this example, the pulse pressure would be the systolic pressure, which is 120, sub, and then you subtract 80, which is the diastolic pressure, and then you get 70 40. or 40. Okay, 40. Yeah, I can't do it. Does that make sense? That's, that's a simple calculation. Can you do that? Does that make sense? Okay, the mean arterial pressure, all you have to do is the same thing. The pulse pressure, remember, you have to put pulse pressure is systolic minus diastolic and just put it in this and just do the math. It's, do you know what I mean? I think it'd be not that difficult, honestly. Okay, I didn't give you any, I, I gave you a calculation of both or I gave you a definition of both. So you have to know either way. Does that make sense? Okay, is that gonna be difficult? No, I don't think so. Unless you don't know how to add, but I think everybody here does. Okay, pretty sure. All right, okay, so when we're talking about this here, we're talking about arteries. The normal systolic pressure is 120. That, what does that reflect? The contractile force of the left ventricle during during systole, right? Because we already talked about how the heart pumps. So you have to kind of put this into that from the first set of slides, okay? All right, diastolic pressure is 80. That reflects the ability of the elastic connective tissue within the walls of the arteries to store 
energy. Remember, we just talked about that. Okay. When the left ventricle is relaxed, then those elastic arteries squeeze the blood through while the ventricle is taking a break. Okay. So diastolic pressure is going to be reflecting the resistance in vessels, even when the heart's not contracting. Okay. That's part of your peripheral resistance. What are your peripheral resistant vessels? The same ones that change the arterioles, yes. Okay. And that's one of the things that you're going to start learning because you're going to have to learn that a lot of times when you have, when you're hypertensive and we did the baroreceptor reflex, remember that baroreceptor? Remember I told you there's a lot of, there's like three questions I think on baroreceptor reflexes, but I told you that, that when we had class. Okay. Volume pressures. What do you have to know about this? This is kind of part of what Boyle's law is that I haven't talked about yet, but I will for, um, and Boyle's law is just the same thing. If volume increases, what happens to pressure? It decreases. So think about when the ventricle fills up, the volume increases, what happens in that ventricle when it fills up? It relaxes so it can get all the, all the blood, okay? And so then when pressure increases during ventricular contraction, what happens to volume? It decreases. That's the relationship, okay? All right, everybody understands hydrostatic pressure? Excuse me. Yeah. Do you, this is PJ. I was wondering if you could go back to the last slide for me. Sure. Mm -hmm. Could you, in the red where it says in the heart, could you mm -hmm. break that down for me? Okay. The ventricles fill with a certain amount of blood, right? Because remember the atria pumps blood. I mean, the atria, remember the valves stay open. Remember that when they fill from the, the venous systems coming back and filling up the atria. Remember that? And so the blood just dumps to the ventricles. So the ventricles has blood and now the ventricles are going to start stretching. Are we good? So if you stretch because you're relaxed and you're just getting a bunch of fluid in, or blood in there, what happens to the pressure in the ventricle? Because it's relaxed. It's not doing anything. Is it pushing any blood? No, it's so, just accepting a bunch of blood. So a cavity is accepting fluid and the pressure is going down? Correct. It, it doesn't make sense to you, but if you, if you think about it, here's a balloon. You're filling it up with water. Does a balloon contract and push water in your face when you're filling it up? Negative. Right. So here's the heart chamber. Blood's coming in. The heart's just accepting the, the blood. So the, it's just coming in. Is it, causing, is it causing some pressure on the walls? Yeah. But the ventricle itself is not contracting. It's just filling up. Then it gets depolarized and then it contracts. So as this is filling this way, volume is going to increase, right? And due to the pressure equals one over volume, volume increase. And so if this increases, that has to decrease. That's, those are reciprocals of each other. Okay. And then when the ventricle starts to contract, it's going to start contracting. So it's going to increase in pressure against that blood. So when this contracts, the pressure is going to increase. So what happens to the volume? It decreases. These are reciprocals of each other. Okay. 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 The thing is, is that, okay. Think of it this way. Okay. You're relaxing and then you're eating and drinking and whatever, right? You're good to go. But then you have to go poop, right? Getting it in was fine. 
getting it out, what do you have to do? Squeeze those buns and get it out. Does that make sense? I mean, I don't know. That's probably the easiest way to, I mean, it's kind of gross, but it kind of makes sense, right? When you're super full, what do you do? You go to the bathroom, yes? Same with your bladder. Your bladder fills up over the period, and then your body says, I have to go to the bathroom, right? So then it's full, but it's less pressure. When you go to the bathroom, sometimes you have to, have to initiate that push because you've held it in for so long. Has anybody done that? Where you have to go pee, you sit there and you go, okay, now I have to go pee. What happened? Your, your, your sphincters contract. You have to relax that sucker so that's the urine out, okay? <laughs> Just how it works. You got, ladies know that if you've been in the hospital and you've had anesthesia for pregnancy, you know you have to go to the bathroom, you go to the bathroom, you can't go. You don't know what happened because you held it in so long. Your sphincter's like, hello, are you going to go? And then you're like, okay, relax, chill. And then you meditate and you finally go. Okay, hydrostatic pressure, remember, is just pushing pressure, right? Pushing against the walls, remember? And that's just going to lead up to what we we're going to talk about with flow. Okay? Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, are we good? All right, so Ohm's law is on your exam. Remember, we did Ohm's law today too. Remember that? Okay, so Ohm's law is a biggie. It's biggie all through um, medicine, believe it or not. Okay, all right, so basically it's showing you flow in the cardiovascular system. In the pulmonary system, it's showing you flow of blood as well, right? Okay, all right, so remember you have to, you have to look at the two sides of the coin. So. Remember when I said pressure difference, what is the synonym I told you to remember? Pressure gradient. If you see that on the test, that's what it means. The change in pressure from one area to another area. Change in P, P1 to P2, remember? And so that's this diagram right here. P1, P2, difference in those two, okay? That's your pressure gradient. Okay, so could you, if I gave you a pressure gradient and a resistance, would you be able to figure out flow? Okay, and if I gave you a flow and a pressure gradient, can you give me resistance? It's just manipulating that Ohm's law. Okay, so I gave them down here. Change in pressure equals what? Flow times resistance, resistance equals, so you have to be able to manipulate this in different ways. And I'm sure you do because that's math, simple math. Okay, so when you talk about vascular resistance, what are you, who are you talking about? What vessel? Arterials. Arterials. Keep telling yourself that, okay? All right, so this is just an example of what we were just talking I was just talking about. This arterial and venous pressure, that's your what? Pressure gradient. And then the flow or the resistance will be given. Two of these variables will be given. You just have to figure out the third. I don't think that's going to be that difficult. Okay. Okay, you guys. And what I want you to do on Monday night, I don't care what you do, you stop studying at a certain point and you just try to go to bed. Go to bed. Okay. Now you didn't hear this from me, but if you need to take oral, you know, the Benadryl, the oral kid stuff to get to bed, you do what you got to do. Because the more you sleep, seriously, you guys, the more you sleep the better guesser you are. But if you're sitting here all tense and stuff, you're not going to remember anything. Yeah, I know. But I mean, Monday night, though, Monday night before Tuesday morning, you go over, listen to me, this is really important. You go over a cheat sheet. You just pull out all the stuff I told you and put it on a sheet, study the crap out of it. Then you're done. Go to bed, 
If you get the good night's sleep, I promise you'll be able to guess the right answers, even if you didn't even know what the right answer was. I bet you will. Okay. Okay. Another one you're going to have probably. Okay. Who has the largest cross-sectional area? And so what's the flow? Increased or decreased? Okay. So this right here, velocity of flow with blood flow or cross-sectional area. Okay. Arteries have a smaller cross-sectional area, right? So their flow is what? Fast. And then, the, then it's arterioles, then it's venules, and the last one is capillary. So this is going in, in from fastest to slowest flow. Okay? And you can see that over here. Here is a cross-sectional area of the aorta. Look how fast blood flows through it. Does that make sense? As a cross-sectional area gets smaller, the speed gets slower. Are we good? Okay, that's all you need to know for that. Not a big thing. Okay, there's going to be a question between laminar flow and turbulent flow. So make sure you know the causes of either or. What's, you know, what's laminar flow? How does that work? Does that make sense? You have friction against the walls, but the middle part is going to go faster. Yes? Remember? Okay. And turbulent flow here is where it pr produces eddies because of what? Is they're going too fast and making sharp turns or the vessel could be narrow. Okay. And obstruction can cause that. When you narrow the vessel, that means obstruction, right? Closing it off. Okay. All right. We good? All right. Pascal's law. This is given to you again in respiratory. So do you think it's important? Probably. Okay. And so I put the formulas here. So what you're combining to make to, to figure out Pascal's law here for flow, the change in pressure over resistance, which was Ohm's law. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then you substitute the resistance by Pascal's, and then you get flow equals change in pressure times radius over length times viscosity. So if viscosity increases, what happens to the blood flow? Think of, a, think of drinking a milkshake versus water. Does that make sense? So the velocity, you have, to really, you have to use a lot of suction to pull that milk up through it, okay? All right, so vasoconstriction decreases the vessel diameter. So what does that do? Mm-hmm, so then you have decrease in blood flow, okay? So you guys know that from what we just talked about with alpha and beta receptors, yeah? Okay, I'm gonna ask you about something about this. Notice what hematic rate. If you have an increased hematic rate, you're gonna have a what? Increased viscosity, you're gonna have increased vascular resistance, okay? But if you have an increase in viscosity, you're also gonna have a decrease in flow, right? Okay, all right. Blood pressure. Hmm. I gave you mean arterial pressure is proportional cardiac output times uh, peripheral resistance. Okay. I don't remember how I put this. I don't remember if I gave you a formula or if I'm asking you what it means. Does that make sense in words? So just know what it means. Okay. And if I gave you, if I gave you a number, I can't remember if I gave you numbers or not. If I gave you numbers, then you should be able to figure it. You know, it should be able to calculate it. Okay. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's for that. And I gave you the last. Okay, so let me just double check my cheat sheet over here. Um, 
Okay, so one of the things I want you to know on here, see where it says peripheral resistance? What does that mean? What vessel are we talking about? Arterials. Remember, I told you lots of synonyms. So if you look at a word, so this is total, this is peripheral resistance. PR could also be total peripheral resistance. It means the same thing. It could be arterial resistance because that's they all mean the same thing. Okay. Total resistance equals arterial resistance equals total peripheral resistance. Okay. And so this is what it says here: is resistance of blood vessels to blood flow when they go through them. So that means that they are constricted, okay? I remember that picture that I showed you when you had that, all the arterioles going out. And this was on section four. You guys remember that? Okay, let's just go really quick on section four. I did tell you what was on there for section four. I hope you wrote it down, but I don't know if you did. So let's just look at it real quick. Okay, are you guys feeling a little better? Yeah. Okay. I really want you guys to pass this test. So I'm trying to indirectly tell you what's on it, but I can't tell you what's on it. Okay. <laughs> so I'm trying to be like, okay, remember this, you know, uh, um, these words, agonist, antagonist, perfusion. We talked about perfusion today in, in pulmonary. What did that mean? What does perfusion mean? Blood flow. Remember that? Okay. That's why this is coming back at you. That's why I keep telling you guys, oh yeah, you have to know this, this, this. All right. Okay, so remember cardiac output comes from where? From who? Left ventricle, right? That's the same thing as what? Stroke volume, ejection, remember that? Okay, arterial um, pressure is balanced between blood flow and, and blood flow in and out of the capillaries. And so remember the blood flow out of the arteries is influenced by peripheral resistance. That means the arterioles are the ones that judge how much blood comes out from the um, cardiac output. And that's what this picture was all about, okay? So remember, this is the ventricle pushing blood through the valve, aortic semilunar valve into the aorta, right? That's your mean arterial pressure. And if you look back at that diagram, when you start mean arterial pressure kind of goes down as it moves through the vascular system, where the formula for pulse pressure, mean arterial pressure was that diagram. Okay, you can see this, yes. Um. So when I was looking at this yesterday, I was getting confused about it because okay. um, in the little paragraph, it's saying that as arterial volume increases, pressure increases. But I feel like this whole time we've been saying as volume increases, pressure decreases. And so that confuses me. Okay. So here on here, it says um, as arterial volume increases, arterial volume. Okay then the pressure is going to increase in this vessel because what's happening is as you're, in other words, it's almost like the artery is stretching but has a little bit of resistance because the elasticity, does that make sense? So when you're pushing out here and you're saying pressure is going to increase, it's going to increase until it fills up, does that make sense? But it has, you got to remember anything that has elasticity is going to give but it's also gonna have a little pressure against it. Does that make sense? So in this here, when it says that this blood increases, that means they're talking about pressure, but they're really talking about volume because the pressure it's going through here is so great. That's what they're talking about. The pressure it's going in here is so great to fill this up. 
Does that make sense? Because the ventricle has to really push hard to push through the AV valve to get all that blood into that arterial. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So that's what they're kind of alluding to. This is going to have a pressure increase. And so this is going to be, when it fills up, that's going to be the pressure in that vessel. Because remember, those are the pressure reservoirs. That'll be the mean arterial pressure. That's how much comes out of the ventricle. Okay. So is it more meaning that like the pressure coming from the left ventricle is Inc high pressure, which makes the arterial, 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 yeah, get bigger, get bigger. And remember, that's a pressure reservoir. So it's storing that pressure. Okay. Does that make sense? It's storing the pressure because when the ventricle contracts, it's going to contract somewhat still holding on pressure because when it ventricle um, goes through diastole, Somebody has to send blood through, so then they continue contracting. Does okay. that make sense? Mm -hmm. So they're actually just holding the blood under pressure until it's needed to be pushed again. Okay. Okay. All right. So coming in here, the pressure is going to increase in here. So it's going to increase the pressure in the mean arterial, uh, in the arterials because, and this is the other part of your equation that you just asked me. What was your name? I forgot. Oh, Aaron. Aaron. Okay. What happens here is, is these guys are going to determine how much pressure is in here. Okay. Does that make sense? So these are going to be, these are resistant, these are variable resistant vessels. These are your arterials. So if the flow into the arteries is greater than what comes out of the arteries, what happened? So the balloon is trying to push out, but then your, your resistance, you're decreasing resistance. So what happens? Flow in is going to be greater than what comes out because this resistant vessel is constricting. Does that make sense? And if it does that, then Aaron, the pressure will be greater in the, the, the mean arterial pressure will be greater in the aorta. Okay. Because the aorta has to push that out. Okay. So you have an increased arterial uh, blood volume, which is going to mean the volume presses against the walls and that's going to increase the pressure in that vessel. Okay. If the flow out of the arteries is greater than the flow in, then what happens? decrease in arterial resistance, okay? It's kind of trying to like blowing out of a balloon. Have you guys ever blown a balloon where you haven't stretched it out and you go like this and you're really pushing hard, hard, hard and it just barely opens up? That's the pressure we're talking about, okay? But if you stretch it and then you blow on it, it's not as hard anymore, right? So basically that distance is that opening of that balloon that you kind of, kind of stretched out and pulled a little bit so it can, has more elasticity. Question from Salt Lake. Yes, this is Roko. Um, so can like in like a summative form, could you say like the atrials are the driving force between the pressure that is mean arterial pressure? Like in Atrias? my wait, wait, you mean you mean arteries, arterial arteries? Ar yeah, ar arterials. Did Ar I, I, I keep on saying atrials. I don't, arterials. I say the wrong thing all the time, <laughs> yeah. so I understand. Uh, so ar arterials are the driving pressure for mean arterial pressure. Cardiac output Correct. is just like a secondary effect of the resistance that it's pushing against. And my Correct. like my my mind is going like, if say like your atrial arterial <laughs> is uh, like. Gone. Your so aorta. Like, your aorta is basically what we're talking about. Yeah. But like, okay, that answers that question. Then another thing to kind of like fill it out is like if your arterial's gone, like say like in a very simplified version, like amputation, your blood just kind of pours out. There's no resistance coming, like meeting the mean arterial pressure. So you're just gonna start losing it. Correct. Okay. Well. Okay. 
So here we talked about volume. The more, remember I said, if you go to a baseball game, you eat a whole bag of sunflower seeds, what's going to happen? You're going to be thirsty, right? So what are you going to do? You're going to get those monster drinks and you're going to keep drinking them until you don't feel thirsty anymore, right? So that means increasing in volume. But that means your volume is going to be retained, right? So you're gonna, it's going to increase in blood pressure. And so remember, blood pressure has two ways to react. One is the fast response, which is basically the cardiovascular control center, which is going to cause you to do the baroreceptor reflex. Remember that? Or we have the vasodilation and then you decrease cardiac output, so you decrease in, in blood pressure. The second mechanism is going to be compensated by the kidneys, but that's the slow way of getting it. So if you notice, and this is something you might want to, the kidneys are gonna excrete fluid, but they can't do anything to bring fluid in. All they can do is retain it or get rid of it, okay? So if you eat a lot of salt, your kidneys are gonna retain fluid because the salt and, you know, dri drives water into the tissues, right? And so what's gonna happen, you're gonna drink that monster drink, and then for a while, nothing happens. And then all of a sudden you're in bed and you're getting up like every five minutes, that's the slow kidney response. It's starting to get rid of the, the fluid so your blood pressure goes down, okay? All right, all right, so each tissue has to, each tissue needs oxygen, it needs nutrients, carbon dioxide and hydrogen and other metabolites are removed from the tissues, okay? All right, so we have two theories, the vasodilator theory and the oxygen demand theory, okay? So remember the vasodilator theory says that if you have more or have a faster rate of metabol metabolism, okay, then you're gonna have less oxygen available to the tissue, okay? All right, so we're gonna use the, the flow equals change in pressure over resistance again, okay? So this is another one, same flow. And we talked about the more, if you increase metabolism, what does that mean? Exercise, think of exercise. That's increasing metabolism. You need more blood flow because you need more oxygen. Why? Because you're getting rid of oxygen. So we look at this. Increased metabolism, tissue metabolism, it's gonna increase in vasodilators, okay? And we had a whole list of vasodilators and vasoconstrictors that we talked about. You have to know which ones are vasodilators and which ones are vasoconstrictors are along the path here because that will be on your test, okay? So the vasodilators will dilate. So if they dilate the vessel, what happens to the resistance of the vessel? It decreases. And so that's gonna increase in blood flow, okay? Some vasodilators that I wrote up here because we did a couple of this, adenosine, carbon dioxide, lactic acid, ADP compounds. These are gonna have to kind of do a memory for this, just memorize or do a mnemonic, okay? This rechanged, decrease in oxygen concentration. Remember we changed this because it was, arrow was wrong. I put it on the wrong side. Okay. So decrease in oxygen concentration that causes an increase in blood flow. So when your, when your body uses up from, from metabolizing it so fast, it's basically using up your oxygen. So that's kind of saying the same thing as this. Does that make sense? But when you increase metabolism, you're doing it faster. So if your tissue concentration decreases or the saturation of it decreases, okay, then what happens? you're gonna need more blood flow. Why? Because it's almost like starving your tissue of oxygen. And when you starve your tissue for oxygen, you're gonna vasodilate and you're gonna bring blood more to that tissue, okay? So that's what this is all about. Increase in tissue metabolism or decreased delivery to tissues. Same thing we just talked about, those two things. Tissue oxygen concentration is gonna decrease. 
So if you're anemic, what happens? Tissue delivery is going to be decreased. So what does your body do? It says, oh, gee, we have a decrease in oxygen. So what are we going to do? We're going to decrease resistance in the vessels to increase some blood flow to them. Remember, decreased resistance means dilate. So that would decrease blood pressure? We're not talking about blood pressure. We're talking about blood flow to that tissue. Okay, you have to know the difference between active hyperemia and reactive hyperemia. That's on your test. Okay. Okay, so remember active hyperemia is when you exercise. The increase in tissue metabolism, what happens? The the, then you need a release of vasodilators. That's gonna cause the arterioles to dilate. And when they dilate, what is the resistance in the arterioles? It decreases, yes? So what does happen to blood flow? It's gonna increase because you have a dilated blood vessel. Is that confusing for you guys, decrease resistance? No. Yeah. So when you're when you when you exercise and so forth, what are you doing? You're using up a lot of oxygen, right? So that means the oxygen in your tissues is decreased. Okay. Because you're using it up as fast as it's coming in. So your so your vessels, your they send they send more vasodilators to try to get more blood to the tissues. Okay. So then the arterioles are going to dilate. So when they dilate, what happens to their resistance when those arterioles dilate? Resistance decreases when you dilate. So think of decrease, dilate, easy synonym, okay? And then what happens if you dilate, what happens to blood flow? It's gonna go, it's gonna increase. So what's gonna happen? Then your oxygen and nutrients are gonna be giving rise to the tissue that needs them, okay? So it increases your um, metabolism. Oxygen supply is gonna increase as long as your metabolism increases, okay? All right, reactive hyperemia is a little bit different. Okay, this is when you have a period of decreased blood flow. So you can have a clot. Remember we talked about this? Okay, so your tissue flow is gonna be decreased if you have a clot. We talked about that today. Remember you have a, you think of a straw and you put a big spit wad in there and you, and you can't push it through because you bit it too big and it doesn't go through, right? So what you, what you keep doing is you either spit in there and what it does so it can move a little bit better, but then it makes it even heavier, right? Or you blow really hard to push it out, correct? Okay, so when, it happens, when that happens, when you have an occlusion to a blood vessel, like a blood clot, for instance, what happens is the vasodilators are going to be released, but then they accumulate in the extracellular fluid. Okay, so they are gonna vasodilate, but it's not enough to get the clot moving, okay? So then what happens is that they, dilate, they do dilate, but the occlusion still is there. So what happens? Then nitrous oxide comes in from the endothelium of those vessels and causes more vasodilation so that the clot can be removed and you're going to have an increase in blood flow. So that, what's that going to do? It's going to do the same thing. Once your arteries, arterioles dilate, removes the clot, the resistance in the, in the arteries are going to create an increase in blood flow. And so then you're gonna have the vasodilators all wash away and then blood returns back to normal. Blood flow returns back to normal. Okay, now, this is what I was talking about before. Yes. Where does the nitrous oxide come from? Endothelial cells, they're paracrines from the endothelial cells. It goes Thank back to, I think one of the first slides we did when we talked about the layers of the, um, 
blood vessels, it's on that slide. And it's also right here. But I didn't tell you where it's from, but it's I, I did tell you where it's from on that slide. This slide is going to be a question. Dr. Klein, I'm sorry. Yes. This is PJ. I'm going to interrupt you one more time. No, it's okay. Um, I'm, I always thought that the hyper or the reactive hyperemia was any type of occlusion. So like if I was sleeping on my arm and so I was just It is any to, type of occlusion. It is. I just used a blood clot just for example. So would that mean with the active hyperemia, are we not getting the NO as well? Oh, you mean when you're exercising? Yeah, yeah but it's not, it's not, what happens in, the, in this case here you're going to get all those vasodilators. Yes. Okay. But in this case where you have reactive, your, your vessels are like, okay, we need more help. Where are we going to get that from? So then they secrete their own nitric oxide, more of it. Does that make sense? Because all of it, the vasodilators are accumulating in the extracellular fluid and the clots inside. So remember they have to permeate to cause vasodilation. Uh -huh. So the endothelial cells are saying, okay, well, we're going to help it out by giving nitrous oxide more and more pushing it out to try to buzz, to dilate it more to get that that occlusion removed it's just like a backup does that make sense i guess i just so really they both are sending out the, the same the same vasodilators yes. except mm -hmm. for they accumulate more with an occlusion because it's obviously not moving and we're just right. hoping that 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 our occlusion is something that vasodilation will actually fix correct but then what happens is Inside the endothelial cell, then the endothelial the endothelial layer decides, okay, we're going to secrete more oxide to try to vasodilate more. Okay, so okay, with, it's, it's like a little push. So I guess with the first green box with the CO two and the hydrogen, they're both going to do that, but except for the react or the reactive hyperemia is going to get the little extra bump with the nitric NO. The nitric oxide, yes. Okay, I'll go with that. Okay. Thanks. And the only reason I put those in there, though, these are just paracrines. I just gave you an example of the paracrines that would cause. These are vasodilator paracrines. Does that make sense? Yeah. I just gave, no, I just, of, I just gave you a few examples. I, didn't, I otherwise I, I could put a whole line of stuff in there. Yeah, but then what, yeah. what what happens is those vasodilate, but it's not going to be enough to to re release that occlusion. So then the endothelial cells say, okay, well, I'm going to secrete more nitric oxide because that's a, a, a real potent vasodilator. Does that make sense? So it's just adding more to the, you know, to the situation. So it makes it easier for the blood clot to move. Okay. I think I get the takeaway that it's the extra, you know, it's just extra, yeah, it's just the extra kick. Does that make sense? Okay. okay this is, uh, this concept is on your exam. Okay. So here you have the sympathetic neuron releasing norepinephrine to alpha receptors. And we talked about this. Was it you, Aaron, that asked me about this? Somebody asked me about this. Okay, well, anyways, right here, what's going to happen is this is the sympathetic signal is going to release norepinephrine. So the more you increase in the sympathetic signal, what's going to happen? More norepinephrine will bind, on, bind to alpha receptors. Yes. Okay, so what's going to happen, though, to the vessel? More epinephrine, then you're going to get more vasoconstriction, right? More epinephrine binds to the alpha receptor, right? Okay. If you decrease the signal, the sympathetic signal, then you're going to decrease norepinephrine and you're going to decrease the release of norepinephrine. So you're not going to have that much epinephrine binding to the alpha receptor. So then what happens? It relaxes and you vasodilate it. Does that make sense? 
So this is that concept that we were talking about. I think maybe it was Allison that you asked me. I don't know. Someone asked me about this. Okay, about alpha and betas. Okay. So this is basically what you're looking at is a sympathetic neuron that can actually vasoconstrict or vasodilate without the help of parasympathetic at all. That's mainly how your vessels constrict and dilate. Okay. All right. So autoregulation. I this you guys have to memorize this. This is on your exam. Either vasodilators or vasoconstrictors. You have to know their names because you have to identify them. Okay, I think I went over this that day. Remember, I started, you guys made check boxes or whatever. Okay, the baroreceptor reflex. When does it get trigger, triggered? It can get triggered with high blood pressure or low blood pressure, right? But the example we gave you is high blood pressure. Does that make sense? Does everybody remember that? So what happens? If you have increase in blood pressure, over here, it goes to the carotid and aortic baroreceptors, yes? Okay, what are these guys? They stretch. Why do they stretch? Because if you have too much blood going through them, they stretch. If you have too little, they constrict, correct? But the example I gave you was increase in blood pressure. Remember that? Okay, so what happens? It sends a signal to the cardiovascular system in the medulla, right? And then what happens? It stimulates sympathetic and parasympathetic signals, okay? This is a great picture of where here, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic are common denominators to what? The SA node. But the AV node is innervated by who? Parasympathetic. And the ventricle, denticular muscle is? And see the artery, arterioles and the veins are also sympathetic. Can everybody see that? Okay. So for all intents and purposes, your books a lot talk about sympathetic and parasympathetic, but then, but then they kind of backtrack and say, oh, okay, well, not really parasympathetic, just sympathetic. Okay. But you're going to have this parasympathetic and sympathetic a lot in your pharmacology. So just whatever they tell you in pharmacology is going to hold. Okay. All right. So when the pressure increases, what happens? The carotid and aortic baroreceptors, what do they do? They send a afferent signal to the cardiovascular control center, right? In the medulla. And then the medulla has this, you remember you have a sympathetic and parasympathetic re reactions, right? Okay. All right. So you're going to have a decrease in sympathetic. And I don't know why this is here. I forgot to change it. And so parasympathetic is going to do what? Increase. Okay. That should have been an increase. Okay. Okay. So it's going to affect your arterial smooth muscle, your, your ventricle, your ventricular muscle, your SA node of the heart. Those are the three things that are going to be impacted by the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. Are we good? Okay. So what happens? Since you have a decrease in, paras in sympathetic, what happens to norepinephrine? It's going to release less. Yes. Less binds to alpha receptors. And so less binds to alpha receptors, what's going to happen to the arterioles? And that's what this picture was all about. Okay. All right. Okay. Because I'm going to ask you like three questions from this picture right here. I mean, from this slide. So you just make sure you understand. Okay. Or not this slide. Sorry. This one. Okay. So a decrease in sympathetic is going to cause a reduced peripheral resistance, a decrease in sympathetic is going to cause less norepinephrine on the beta-1 receptors of the muscle. And that's going to decrease contractility and the force of contraction. So what happens? You're going to have a decrease in stroke volume. The sympathetic then goes to the SA node, okay, 
And so it releases less norepinephrine on the beta-1 receptors of the SA node. It slows down the heart rate. So what do you have? Reduced peripheral resistance, reduced contraction, and reduced heart rate from the sympathetic. Are we good so far? The parasympathetic is going to increase. So what happens? More acetylcholine is going to bind to the muscarinic receptors. And then what's going to happen? It goes to the SA node and the AV node, but it only put SA here. And it slows the heart rate. So you're going to have decrease in heart rate. Okay, so you have to know what the sympathetic does and where it does it to and what receptors and what, what um, neurotransmitters being released. But we've been repeating this over and over. Does that make sense? So you should have it down by now. And what, what's the ultimate? What's the ultimate outcome? You want to decrease in your blood pressure. Okay. All right. So this is what I was talking about before. These are in series. These arteries, the arterioles in series. Okay, so this is mean arterial pressure, cardiac output, and total peripheral resistance. Okay, we haven't had a break, and I'm so sorry, but I just wanted to try to go fast. We can get through it and not worry about it. Okay, all right, so if arterial A, remember, gets constricted, what happens to the total peripheral resistance? It, this increases, so it's going to back up, and it's going to increase the total peripheral resistance if one vessel constricts. Are we good? So now that the increase in total peripheral resistance exists, and the cardiac output remains the same, what happens to mean arterial pressure? Okay, so you increase this, it's gonna increase that. If this stays the same, right? Cardiac output. All right, so mean arterial pressure is gonna increase, so what's gonna happen? The baroreceptor reflex, okay? And the baroreceptor re reflex was gonna cause a decrease in cardiac output. Okay, so now, you have increased peripheral resistance, a decrease in cardiac output. And so what's going to happen to mean arterial pressure? It just goes back to normal. Okay, so this is something you probably need to look at visually. All right, I'm going to ask you the difference between continuous capillaries and fenestrated capillaries. That's a test question. You have to know the difference between the two. Okay. So remember, the continuous capillaries are leaky and the fenestrated have pores in them. Okay, the other thing you have to remember is where they're located. Okay, so the capillaries that are continuous are found in the muscle, connective tissue, and blood-brain barrier. Okay, they both have the same, pretty much the same pathways, right? They both have transcytosis. They both have openings. One is a pore and one is, is uh, just a little hole, which this continuous is, okay, because it's leaky, all right? All right, I didn't ask you about paracellular pathway because I just assumed that you're going to know. Okay, this, there's a question on this on your exam, and it's going to be a numerical question. It's a calculation. I give you all the numbers. All you have to do is plug in the numbers by the, the uh, formula. And this is why in the pulmonary section, I just told you, you kind of know what it does. You know what I mean? So if you have a positive number, then it's what? Filtration or absorption? Right here, we talked about this. Outward movement, right? Okay. And so here, it's filtration. If it's a positive number, absorption is a negative number, according to what we just did with inward motion. But for all intents and purposes, in normal hydrostatic pressures for different vessels in different areas, it has to be positive if it wants to push it through the next section. Does that make sense? So if you had, for instance, 
um, too much volume, your, your tissues are going to pull in the fluid instead of push out the fluid. They're going to retain fluid. Does that make sense? So retaining fluid be absorption. If you're going to get rid of fluid, it's filtration, right? Do we need to go over this? Okay, that was a, that was a question mark. Okay, so remember this is the what's connected over here, an artery, right? And what's connected over here, a venule, right? Okay, because this is microscopic. This is a capillary. So as blood flow through pushes here, the blood is going. If it pushes out, what kind of pressure is that? Hydrostatic. If it pulls in, it's osmotic. And remember, I told you osmotic pressure is caused by colloids, meaning proteins in this capillary or proteins in the interstitial fluid. There's proteins in both of these, but there's more proteins in here than there's in the interstitial fluid, okay? There's a little bit of protein in the interstitial fluid and there's a lot in here, are we good? Okay, so you're always gonna have a pulling pressure and a pushing pressure in each area. So you're gonna have it in the lymph and in the interstitial fluid and in the capillary like we had it today, okay? But in this case, what they're saying is as bulk flow moves in, you're gonna have more filtration on the arterial end than reabsorption. As you move to the venous end of the capillary, you're gonna have more absorption and less filtration. Are we good? That's all it's saying. So when you calculate the net filtration pressure, meaning hydrostatic pressure, and I did it down here. I don't know if you guys caught this or not, so you might wanna write this down. But this is where you're using the two hydrostatic pressures Okay, minus the two filtration, I mean, the two uh, osmotic pressures, and you're getting a number that's a positive number, and that's filtration. Okay, that's another way to do it if you don't do it just from this end or this end. Does that make sense? It's another way to do it. Okay, so when you're looking at this here, anything that's pushing from the interstitial fluid in toward the capillary is going to be positive number. And when it goes out, it's a negative number. Does that make sense? Okay, everybody understands that, filtration and reabsorption. Okay, I think you could figure that out. Does anybody have a problem with knowing what we're talking about? I think we kind of covered this pretty well. Okay, then lymphatics. What are the three functions? You probably should know that. Okay. All right, and this is, this is going to be something you have to figure out again. We talked about this today. Okay, remember you have filtration pushing fluid into the interstitial fluid. Then the interstitial fluid has to have its own pressure to push fluid into the lymphatic. Does that make sense? By bulk flow. Yes. That's what we talked about today, if you remember. And then the lymphatic is going to push blood, you know, push the, the uh, lymph fluid to back to the circulation. Okay, so there'll be a question on lymph as well. Okay, but what we talked about mostly is this. Who makes proteins? What organ in your body? Liver, right? Your liver makes the proteins. Okay, so if you have alcoholism, like we talked about here when we talked about liver disease, alcoholism, your liver cannot make proteins, right? So if it doesn't make proteins, what happens? 
You don't pull fluid back into the capillary. It stays in the interstitial fluid. That makes sense? So you get ascites, big old stomach, like that little kid right here. Okay. Also starvation. You're not eating enough protein. So you're actually getting swelling. Even though you're skinny, you're going to get this ascites here as well. Okay. So if you have an increase in hydrostatic pressure, that's going to increase your venous return to the heart because all the blood vessels are bringing blood back to the heart. Okay. And they're pushing fluid through. If you have a decrease in plasma protein concentration, that's going to cause a decrease in plasma uh, colloid osmotic pressure, which if you look at this diagram over here, okay, remember it's these proteins in here, they're going to be deficient. So they are not able to reabsorb fluid because they're gone. So the fluid's going to stay in the interstitial fluid and you have swelling. So if your liver doesn't make enough to come in here and pull the fluid back from the interstitial fluid back into the capillary so you can get rid of it, it's going to stay in the interstitial fluid. So remember we talked about this. If we get an injury, it's the same thing. If the capillary breaks, some of that colloid is going to come into the interstitial fluid. Water follows the colloid. It's like a magnet. So it's going to increase the interstitial fluid. It's going to cause swelling. Yes, question. Yeah. This is Drew. Um, I, had, I, I get the, the decrease in plasma protein, but the bullet above that, the increase in capillary hydrostatic pressure. So you talk a lot about that being a pushing pressure. So that, in my mind, that's mean more fluids going out into the interstitial space, but then it's increased venous return. So that's where I'm having a bit of a disconnect. Okay. Because what happens in, when you have an increase in venous return and an increase in heart failure, Think about the pressure that it's putting on the venous system if you have a bunch of fluid around it. Uh, so it's like they're being pressed from the outside in, so it's making them constrict? Increase. Yep. And so what do they have to do when they constrict? They have to increase in their pressure to get through, get blood through. So how does that increase venous return? Kind of like what we talked about today, you know, a little bit when you're talking about something on the external end, pushing against something, it's going to create the constriction more of the venous return or the venous vessel. So the pressure is going to have to increase in the venous so it can increase in venous return. So more blood's going to get pushed to the heart, toward the heart, because everything's going to push, contract and make it move toward the heart. That makes sense. So the fluid in the interstitial space is, is squeezing the veins and therefore more blood is going to the heart. Yes. Causing failure. Okay. Okay. All right. Elephantiasis, I didn't ask you about, but I did ask you about the capillary filter, this, this area right here. There's a question on this. Okay. All right. I, I remember I told you there's going to be a question on risk factors as well. Okay. On this section. Dr. Klein. Oh, yeah. Just sorry to jump all the way back, but going back to the capillary fluid exchange on the your little calculation down at the bottom, mm -hmm. I'm just trying to figure out how you got seven because that should be so 32 subtract 15 is going to be 17 and then subtract 25 subtract 25. Oh, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. Okay, right? so it should be what's 32 plus 15 plus or subtract. 
No, when you're adding them together. Oh, why is it? Because I probably made a mistake. 32 plus 15 is what? 47. 47. Okay. And then you minus, it should be a minus, right? And then you should, then it should be, actually, it should, it should be actually three. I don't know. I, I did mathematically wrong. This should be 32 plus 15 minus 25 plus 25. So that should be actually three. That's what this is. Does that make sense? I made a mistake. No. No. Can you draw it out on the 32 plus 15, right? That's 47. Why? And then minus that's 47 minus, that's minus, and this should 50, be that's 17 still. Oh, I don't know what I did wrong. We I think. No, we're yeah, we're subtracting the we're subtracting the. Okay, this is the hard part. I, yeah, I did make I did make a huge mistake. What you're looking at here is this is going out, so this is positive, correct? And this number is positive, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're supposed to be you're supposed to use the hydrostatic pressure minus like we did over here, the opposing pressure on this end. Does that make sense? Which is, 25. which is 25 and then you come over here and then you have the filtration pressure which is 15 right mm -hmm. and then you have 25 over here okay so you have to subtract 32 from 25 and then 25 from 15 i'm sorry that's what i was supposed to I was trying to show you down here and i just messed up so don't even look at this this is wrong decline yeah this is this is pj so for the test do i need to Make sure I can do all what four numbers. No, not not these. I... Not these. I'll ask you whether it's going to be on the arterial end or the venous end. So just like the example in um, writing in black. Yes. Yes. This I was trying to put the two numbers together, but it, it's not right because what happens here? Yeah, it would be a negative number. So forget this right here because it's wrong. I was going to try to make it make sense. So basically what's happening with what, what your nut filtration pressure is, is usually it's your, is your um, capillary hydrostatic pressure minus your capillary minus your um, interstitial fluid pressure, hydrostatic pressure. So it would be pulmonary, I mean, the um, colloid pressure of the capillary, okay? So the be the, the the pulling pressure minus the interstitial fluid pressure. Over. I, you lost yeah. me. Yeah. Here. Start over. This is what it should be. Okay. All right. So this right here. Okay. This is capillary pressure. Okay. And this is going to be your hydrostatic pressure of your capillary. Then it should be minus the interstitial fluid pressure of the interstitial fluid minus the oncotic pressure of the capillary minus the oncotic pressure of the interstitial fluid. So this is the first time we're getting all four numbers on the test. Well, I just tried to make an example, but I screwed it up. So don't look at the four numbers. I'm, I'm not going to ask you that on a test. I'm going to ask you okay. the black. Copy okay. Because I was trying to do this with that does that make sense? But we don't. Yeah, but you don't have the you don't have the formula. I was just trying to show you. That there's another way to do it. This okay. would be the other way to do it. That's what this is supposed to show you. But I sorry, kind of Dr. Blank, can you move your head a little bit so we can see that last? Thank you so much. 
So this is this is pi, and then the P would be your capillary pressure, and that would be your interstitial colloid pressure, because there's proteins on the outside and the inside of the um, one, uh, some on the interstitial fluid side and some on the capillary side. So what I was trying to do is I was trying to use the numbers here to show you the, the other way to figure it out. Does that make sense? So just disregard the red because the black is what I'm gonna ask you, okay? I kind of messed it up a little bit. Can you we point good? to the black that you're gonna ask us? I don't know what you're referring to when you say that. Oh, I'll give you numbers on this side and then I'll give you numbers on this side. And then you're just gonna calculate it out like we did over here. Okay, thank you. So just to confirm, you're, you're stating that, so we'll essentially just need to be able to take the hydrostatic pressure, subtract the, the capillary pressure, and then tell you whether or not it's filtrating or absorbing. Correct. Whether it's and negative or positive, whether you so get a negative or a positive number. I was just trying to use this because your book uses this example, and I didn't show it to you that way, so I'm just showing you another way to do it. Does that make sense? Because this would be through the whole capillary. What I showed you here is either the arterial side or the venous side of the capillary. That makes so we're sense. not going to need to be able to compare the arterial to the venous side. You'll just have to calculate one. Okay. Okay. Are we good? Sorry, I, that, that was really confusing and I apologize for that. It's just that I put that number down there trying to use what your book shows you so you know that there's a different way to calculate it, okay? All right, so that's it, pretty much. Cardiovascular factors, I'll probably ask you risk factors, or I'll ask you about um, cholesterol, triglyceride. I will ask the hypertension question for sure, okay? That's it. Thank that's you so much. Test. Yeah, I'm so sorry, you guys. I'm as tired as you are. I was up at five this morning, and then my dog ran away, and I just, you know how you get anxiety? I couldn't find that dog. It was like... And then I'm calling Sean as I'm running, trying to find the dog, you know. Sorry about that. And in heels, by the way. So like I said, people probably thought I was a nut. Thank you so much. This was really helpful. So welcome. Okay. Please, like I said, please do what I told you to do. Monday night, close the books. You've done what you're going to do. Okay. But make a cheat sheet so you could just look through the stuff really quick, then go to bed, and then wake up and take the test. Okay. Dr. Kuhn? Yeah. Um, I had one more question question and maybe you can just hope it clicks. So I feel like I'm trying to pull up the slide. We talked about epinephrine on a, what I believe is a two receptor uh -huh. regarding the nervous system with constriction. Um, so, and then we considered epinephrine a basal constriction.